Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of The Lighter Side of Serial Killers here on the Boom Bastic Media Network. I am your host, Keith Rovere. I'm an author and collector of true crime art and memorabilia. And I am happy you tuned in, whether it's the first time, or I don't know what podcast this is up to, seven or eight, something like that. I've gotten so many messages, so many comments on the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson. Some of you are amazed that he calls me a couple times a week, and that's cool. It's kind of kind of a commonplace for me, to be honest with you. All the letters and phone calls I get from numerous people throughout the week, um, more and more said they want to be on a podcast, so I'm working on that. But everybody wanted me to ask Keith a question for them. So I and what to have, um, but I decided, why don't we do a podcast? And Keith agreed to it, um, answering your questions. And we got a whole bunch of them. Um, so I think we're going to have a little fun with this. In fact, Keith did it before. Uh, for a group in school, I believe. Uh, I forget what grade it was or a you know criminal psychology class. I forget exactly what it is. Um, but they allowed him to do a Q&A uh, in the classroom. Uh, and there's little bits and pieces of it you can hear online. I don't think the whole thing has been released. Um, so he said yes right away. So I thought that was really cool. So let's just jump right into it. Um, Mr. Jesperson, <laughs> our first question is actually from three people. Same question. Uh, from Jenna Steve and Donna, they all love your artwork, and they want to know, uh, when did you realize um, that you had a passion for drawing or just the gift of drawing itself? Well, my, my artistic talent was in high school. I took art classes in high school, and I went through watercolor, paint, oil paint, and uh, I, I knew I had this talent, but my, I was never enforced to go forward with it. My father uh, always told me I'd never make a living at it. And so, uh, but when my father had his own agenda for me, wanted me to run the family business, run a tobacco in a dump truck. And maybe do a little welding on the side, but that's all he wanted. But as far as my artistic talent, it started way back when I was a kid. I was always liked to draw. Uh, but this only when in prison do I have the time to do so. You know, this is this is the one thing prison does is it gives you the opportunity to spend hours and hours in your cell uh, looking at paper and thinking, what can I draw next? Now, staying on art, uh, Jeff asks, what are your favorite things to paint? And Jason Cavelli asked, what inspires you or goes through your mind when you create such beautiful pieces of art? Do you really think about each piece or does it come to you kind of as you go? Well, a lot of my artwork is, uh, is is reference material that other people have sent me. So I'll look at fantasy art. And there's things that, you know, going through Spectrum books or Boris Vallejo, Joey Bell, you know, those type of people that do fantasy art. I've looked at all those, and they are, you know, there's a piece of art that I love to look at, but they're very hard to draw because of muscle tone and different things. It's really difficult. But there are things that, you know, when I look at books, art books and stuff, there's certain pictures come up that just pull me into them. Uh, one of my favorite uh, reference books is Nature's Best Photography. And those are all photography, those are all pictures of animals. And I can, I can pick and choose through there what animals are on, and then I'll put the animal with, let's say, a sunset or a sunrise, sunrise sunset, same thing, or... Uh, you know, different skies, different different backgrounds. So I can pick and choose as I go. And it's, my references have a lot to do with what I pick and choose. Now, 
along in the play of like, I may have a, a customer that may say, I want the melting Mickey Mouse and I keep doing it, right? And so that's what I do is, is I, I do what they want me to do. And, and then I'll put my little twist to it or something else to help it along. And that's kind of like where I'm at with that. Next we have Krista. She says, what is the one thing you miss most about being free? You know, or maybe a few things, you know, about living life on the outside, so to speak. Uh, she said, you seem so intelligent and educated uh, on the podcast. Uh, it's hard to picture that you were a serial killer. So what are some things that you, uh, that you miss the most? I miss my children. Mm. I miss being with them and spending time with them. That's one of my biggest uh one of the biggest worries I had when I was first arrested, I never, I never see my kids again. And I would, all, you know, whenever I showed up in town, I'd always stop and make sure that they, I'd ask them what they wanted to do. And I was, uh, my ex-wife always called me the Disneyland dad because I'd show up and I'd always have uh, an agenda of, uh, of some kind of fun thing to do. And a lot of the times it's just roller skating or go to the water slides or just spending time with them in the park. Uh, maybe go fishing with my son, and and that's kind of what I would do. Is that's my, my my biggest pet peeve in the whole thing of being in prison is my lack of, of association with my family. For sure, um, Death Dolly asks, "What made you decide to put the first smiley face or happy face on the letter, giving you obviously the nickname the Happy Face Killer?" Well, it was it was actually on the top of the letter in the first on the one that went to the Oregonian newspaper in 1994. And I don't re- it's one of those things that you know when I read about it in a True Detective magazine that I was a happy face killer. I looked at and and, I, and it floored me. I said, "How did they come up with that?" You know. <laughs> and then I see on the picture there's a smiley face on there that, that's sketched on the front page of the letter to the Oregonian. And I was like, "Did I actually do that, or did the did the writer get?" Uh, Phil Stanford, the, the, the publisher, put that on there so they could have a name for me. But apparently I, I must have done it. So it, was a, it wasn't a deliberate thing. It was more of a second nature kind of a thing that happened. And for the life of me, I don't really recall doing it you know, on a purpose. It was something that I found out later, and I was like, well, okay. So when I was in Carson, when I got arrested, I started writing, when I started writing letters to people, I put the spotty face on it. And that became a problem for the prison here. They decided that I can't do that anymore. Make an issue with my, uh, my notoriety as being the happy man. All right. James asks, uh, my wife and I love the podcast. Uh, so much better than reading about it or reading about the cases online or in a TV show. Will you be talking about uh, the other eight cases? Well, I get asked that a lot. Why, am, I gonna, am I going to expose all eight cases? And, and yes, uh, I will be, I'll be getting into those from time to time. I do touch on those, like the Anton Sabree's case. I talk about, already, we already talked about when I dragged her down the highway. There is, you know, the Winningham case, I could get into that. There are Jane Doe's out there, and, and I could dive into these. And, 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 and sometimes they don't, they, they, they don't measure up to what, you know, some people want as explanations. Because part of me is I don't even really want to. I, I for for years I tried to forget about them, and then when I get arrested, now I have to remember everything, and I can't remember. That's why they said in the better case I couldn't remember what the cause was. But I didn't take inventory on everything. I don't know. I mean, murder is murder, and then getting away with it is another thing. And the further away from the, the 
on a one-on-one basis. And they weren't all settled in the right way. Matter of fact, I still have two outstanding cases. One is into a life sentence in writing, and the other one is just a closed case in Florida, which they could open up at any time. But yeah, I, I think we're going to get around to talking about the other cases eventually. All right. Kimberly Jones asks, uh, it's so cool to hear directly from you uh, about the Bennett case. I'll talk about her podcast. Uh, apparently, she studies criminal psychology. Um, better than any article or documentary, can you, please talk, oh, can you please talk about your other cases also? And how do you keep your sense of humor uh, in such a dark place like prison? Well, it, you have to laugh it off. You know, you've got to carry yourself in prison like you would on the street. This is so different than on the street. We're just, everybody in here is guilty or, or suspected to be guilty. So we have to live our lives in prison, make the best of it. So we're like a small community in prison. I, I live within the walls. I'm like, I'm like a, uh, an anthill. You know, I'm in an, I'm in an anthill uh, away from everybody else. And every, every bit of my world is in, in this anthill. In other words, my job and, and my and where I eat is a child hall where everybody else eats. But we have a hospital. We have a, a canteen, a place of store. So I have to look at this as my world. So, yes, I carry on my conversation. I have a sense of humor because it helps me relate to other people. I have funny things that have happened in my life, and I, I wouldn't want to hide that from anyone. I, I think sometimes it's funny to tell jokes. It kind of, like, makes everything kind of, like, you know run smoothly. You know, there's so many people that come to prison when they're like a kid, like they're 18 years old and that. And they don't have stories, and they want to sit around and listen to me tell stories. So because I've lived out there, I came to prison when I was 40. So I actually had a life for a while. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of people that don't have, so my sense of humor came with me. I'm not going to lose my sense of humor just because I'm in prison. And Jen asks... Um, what was the hardest you ever laughed? She said she loves your sense of humor. She loves our TikTok page, you know, the three-minute uplifts we did in, in the podcast. Um, but what happened or what was it that made you laugh the hardest you have ever laughed in your life? Wow. That, that takes me back. Um, I think when I, was, when I was driving down the road and I went out there and I was going to drum up business for my friend Walt, when I, when I was up there and I had uh, a pallet full of, you know, roofing nails, and I drove back uh, towards Clay uh, uh, Washington, and I pulled around the corner, and I took out a case, and I set it next to me, and I was driving down the road, throwing handfuls of roofing nails on Interstate 90, trying to drum up business for a friend of mine. I was laughing all the way. I was thinking, this is going to be funny, right? And then, of course, when I got to uh, got to the truck stop where his, where his tire station was, I had to pull in there and get a couple of tires fixed myself because I flattened a couple of my own tires. I, I had to laugh it off. It was just one of those funny things. Yeah, I remember you telling me about that. Uh, Chase Glover, and I'll have to mention to him about Maria's article, um, her blog, if you will, Beyond the Crime, and her website. Um, he asked, how do you feel about murderabilia, or how do you feel about the true crime market, people selling other people's letters and artwork? Uh, how do you personally feel about that? with uh, Maria on that blog, we talked about the murder memorabilia, and uh, it, it, it's kind of a, a tossy-turvy type of a market. Uh, I'm out there trying to create, and there's people out there trying to dismantle what we're doing. There's a, there's a cop 
and Andy Kahn, which is out of Houston, Texas. And he'll he'll go out of his way to, to downplay the idea of you, you shouldn't be selling uh, and trading murder memorabilia. And they say it's wrong. I don't know. I mean, we have uh, we both live in the same life. And he's out there trying to stop it. And I'm not really trying to stop it. I'm not trying to make it go further either. But it's there, and I can't do anything about it, so I have to relate with it. And let's face it, 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 it helps me with my store items. If I didn't have this market out there to help push along the narrative of, of, of art sales and that, then I would have to maintain just what I have, you know, what I make in prison on my prison job. And I've been down that road before, and I think it's, it's, it's People out there, they're upset. They're upset that the families don't get that money. But if they get the money, then they're participating in murder memorabilia as well. So there's no really good side to this. I mean, if, you know, it's like Jeffrey Dahmer, I guess when his dad wrote the book and, and they sold all the cookie utensils and all that kind of stuff, the money, the money was supposed to go to the victim's family. So who profited off the murder memorabilia? You know, the cookie utensil and stuff like that that he had sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars and that went to the victim's families. They got money from that. So if they didn't want that to happen, then, of course, the uh, then, then nobody would have got any money. And then who would be better off for it or who would be worse off for it? You can't have, you can't have it both ways, right? It, it has to work. I mean, it, it's out there, so you use it. And if you don't use it, other people will use it. And... There's, other, there's always going to be someone that's going to say it's bad. I don't care what it is. It's always bad. Mono asks, how do you control your anger now? That is actually a very good question. Because out on the street, now, you got to consider out on the street when I was out murdering, nobody knew I was a murderer, right? I was out there. I was, uh, I was an Mr. Anonymous, right? I, nobody knew what I was capable of. In prison, everybody knows what you're capable of because this is what I'm in prison for. So uh, my anger, I have to I have to look at it this way. Uh, I this, this prison is run on incentives. So we have a lot of things that you would believe. I, we have an 18-hole pump on a golf course, right? Mm-hmm. I don't play it, but other people do. Why? Because it's entertainment. We have a TV set in our cell. We, we can buy a TV, radio, and all this. This can all be taken away from us. If we go off and get angry and uh, and just screw up our program, how do I how do I keep from doing it? Well, I've I've got to the point where you have to weigh out it all out. Is it worth it to lose everything, or do you want your life to be as easy as possible in prison? Mm. So the best thing I can do is it's just you know I told I told a guy that cut in the line the other day in the canteen. He stepped in line. He looked right at me. You have a problem with this? And I was like. I said to him, I said, I don't sweat the little things. And that was a little thing. When the guy just cut in, I said, I don't give a, I don't give a shit if you cut in. Hell, what are you going to stop me from going to the canteen by one minute? But that's not, that's that's a little thing. These, there's, there's a lot of people that would go to the hole for that, would get in a fight over by one minute. So mm-hmm. why would I do that? I mean, you have to you have to weigh everything out when you're walking the yard. Yes, you have to have eyes in the back of the head. But yes, you have to be wary of what's going on around you. But at the very same time, you have to live your life in here. So the anger part, yes, I've gotten angry. And I've gone back to my cell and I've dwelled on the idea of getting back up the guy or something. 
but I talk myself out of it because I lose too much. And that's, that's, that's the controlling factors. I lose too much in the process. So you have to weigh it out. Now, there's sometimes you have to, you have to perform you know, you have to go out and beat someone down because prison is a respect thing. It's not about being angry. It's about being respectful. And if you just respect someone in here, sometimes you have to put them in their place. Hopefully, sometimes all it takes is a word, you know, just to, just to make a presentation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to hit the guy. Mm-hmm. I haven't gotten in, I have not gotten into a fight in a long time in here. It's definitely good. Uh, Angela asks, if you had not gotten caught, do you think there would have been more victims? Had I not been caught, probably it would have been more victims. Mm. More than likely. Uh, another Angela asks, or first she says, she says, call me twisted, um, but I laughed my ass off when you told the story of how you dragged the victim, also Angela, uh, under your truck to destroy the evidence. But you said, hey, it's a great weight loss program. She said, do you get frustrated uh, when you're doing interviews? And it looks like she, she um, mentioned a Dateline interview with Juju. Um, when... You can see your sense of humor is trying to come through, um, but they kind of cut you off and, like, they have their own agenda. Uh, but you get frustrated all these years doing interviews when they can't or when they don't let you be you. Well, I, they, they, Dateline and, and all that, they have their own agenda. So you're you're asking me a question and you're allowing me to answer the question. They're dictating, their interviews, they're dictating the policy where I want to go with this. Mm. They're kind of pushing the narrative along, and, and so it's really difficult with them. They're tr- I was trying to push a story along with them, and they were trying to make it their story. So it was really difficult to do this. Now, the Surefire Weight Last Plan, I mean, this is just humor. This is, you have to laugh it off, right? Because <laughs> people ask me, when, when I ever got done dragging the body for 12 miles down the interstate, what was left. And I'm like, well, he was, you know, I mean, I was, you got to think about this. I pulled over the side of the road. I got my side cutters out of my back pocket, cut the rope, grabbed onto the, 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 the rope around where her ankles were, and I dragged her off into the shoulder. I had to take an inventory look at what had happened to her in a, in a short time of, of just seconds. So I, I took this inventory that from her ears forward was gone, chest cavity was gone, and the amount of weight that was gone was was incredible. That's why I came up with, you know, I said, well, it's a surefire weight last time because, you know, grinding the body off, I mean, it reminded me of, of why I did it in the first place. That's what the intention was was because of the story I heard or saw in a show where the guy dragged the dog along in his car and got pulled over and said that poor little dog was running until couldn't run anymore, then it was just dragged to nothing. That's how that came about. I was trying to get rid of my identification because I used my credit card call, calling card to call her dad a couple of times on the phone. And that's why I, I felt the need to get rid of that. And yes, it's very... Uh, it's very difficult talking to some reporters where they've got their own uh, rules that they want to abide by, and so you're trying to find you're trying to find a, a, a good medium, and, and of course be serious at the same time. But there's, it's very hard to be serious sometimes when I make humor of this, 
before on different. Remember that this there was a uh, a movie called Funkinhead. No, I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever seen it. You no, know, Funkinhead was like a, it's a horror show, and uh, they had this one scene where um, the body, a female body, was raised in the air so far, then they just dropped onto a rock, and her body was steaming. Right? Mm-hmm. You could see the steam rolling off the body. And I was at at a truck stop in Ogallala, uh, Nebraska, and they are showing the movie, and I was in the back of the audience. They're watching. You could hear the oohs and ahs and that. And I said, "Hurry up and get a piece of that before she gets cold, right?" <laughs> <laughs> and the other truckers kind of all looked around at me like, "What the hell?" I said, "Come on, you guys were all thinking about it. You just didn't want to come out and say it." <laughs> it was crazy. But anyway, that's you know, you get in this 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 sense of humor. You push along because you're around murder all the time now. And it's easier to come out and say, but I understand the question is that it's difficult talking to reporters that have a certain, they're trying to push it a certain way. And you don't know whether or not you want to be humorous or not because you're being depicted a certain way in the media. I'm, I'm this monster and stuff like this. Now, my lawyer had, had schooled me and said, I can't talk about premeditation. I can't talk about anything that would depict that kind of behavior. Because he's, a lawyer will try to get you to do his thing so that he can defend you a certain way. And it doesn't do any good when you come up with a self-start serial killer test. <laughs> I love it. You know, you know, when you come down to it, you know, they're, they're, they're not looking for the humor side of murder. They're looking for a serious side. So when you go to court, if you go to court, that uh, you're not looked at as a monster, even though that's how they look at you anyway. Speaking of how people look at you, Amy asks, has a psychologist ever interviewed you, or has anybody done an MRI of your brain to see if it's, you know, actually a little, uh, the makeup of the brain is a little different, or has a psychologist uh, ever specifically diagnosed you as this or that, so to speak? Well, no, I haven't had a psychologist, although I've had a, a Robert Shrug, which is a professor at Long Beach University, Cal State. He has come to visit me, and he's given me a, bunch, a rash of tests on IQ and different things. He thought up my IQ was up there ways, um, and I had passed certain tests a certain uh, higher than most people have ever had been tested. It had to do with numbers and gambling and different things like that. Um, but as far as a psychologist goes, I mean, no, I haven't had a psychologist uh, want to pick my brain to that degree because I won't let him. <laughs> I came to prison. When I came to prison, there was a, they had a, a guy in here that called me up to his office and said, do you want to talk about anything? And I said, no, I know exactly why I'm in prison. You don't have to, you don't have to, we don't have, we don't have to discuss this. I'm not going to talk about my crimes and so forth because I have to realize anything you say in prison, they take the worst case scenario and they'll, they'll play it out. And I don't want to be, I do not want to be in prison all drugged up. Mm-hmm. I want to remember who I am. And that's why I don't want to talk to a psychologist. A clinical psychologist goes to school to learn his own method based upon his teacher's method. So he doesn't really learn anything other than what his teacher told him. And it may not be the right clinical side of the fact. And he's only looking at me in his own way that the other, that professor taught him. It's not a, it's not a uniformed uh, way of looking at it. 
I think, uh, you know, I'm not crazy. And I don't think, you know, the only, you know, of course, people that are that are crazy don't know they're crazy. <laughs> of course not. I think, too, some psychologists, not all, certainly, um, but they already, before talking to you, they have a box that they already want to put you in. That's true. So, so no matter what you say, um, they already have that agenda. You know, you're already going to be labeled as this or that, like you said. I mean, uh, it's not an exact science from them. Um, so it's a little tricky. It's understanding that uh, yourself and a lot of people, you know, don't want to talk to them. Well, when I first came to prison, they they, they bring you into a room. They give you a test. They say there's no right answer or wrong answer. Just answer, right? And I look at them. I, I put my name on top of the sheet, and I hand in the sheet. It's empty. I don't put anything down. He says, why didn't you put an answer? I said, I just did. He said, there's no right answer, no wrong answer, so why would I answer at all, right? Definitely. He said, well, I need an answer. I said, well, just consider this. And I looked at the, at the whole crowd that was there. I said, remember this. Anything you put down on paper, they'll use against you if you came up on parole. So don't answer anything that you don't want to be re, you know, repeated back to you 20 years down the road when you come up for parole and all of a sudden they're using it against you. I choose not to answer any questions, and I hand in a blank piece of paper. You know, they don't, what can they say? I mean, when they come out and say there's no right answer or wrong answer, just answer. Well, I'm not going to answer at all. Yeah, like lawyers tell you, uh, don't say nothing. <laughs> just keep quiet. Well, you know, like I said before, it's just, we all have the right to remain silent, and some of us just don't have the ability. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, Nicole Seward asked, what is it like to kill somebody? Can you explain in explicit detail what it's like to watch somebody take their last breath or look into their eyes? Uh, was it a rush uh, or exhilarating at the time? Well, I mean, to grab onto someone and hold them against it and then watch their life fade out of their, life, out of their eyes and everything, uh, it isn't like it is in the movies. Mm. It isn't like, go like watching Ghost. You know, was Patrick Tracy where he played, you know, he was the ghost and he was watching the light come down or, or the shadows come out and grab onto the, and pull them that, that direction. It's not like, like that. Um, it's like, uh, I was looking at it as, I was looking at it as a, as, as a job to do. I, was, I, I needed to do this. And so I did it. And then as I was doing this, I was looking for, a sign of their actually dying. I didn't know what the, the very first word I had. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. Even though I've been around people that have died before, I was in an old folks' home where uh, my father had a friend there, and uh, he called him Smitty, and he was dying of cancer or something like that. I mean, my dad took me to the old folks' home, and, and and my dad went to the went to the cafeteria. And he left me there to hold on to Smitty's hand and, and, and to talk to him. And no, I did not help him die. <laughs> <laughs> I was there talking to him, and then he passed away. And the only thing that, that told me he was dead is because I smelled urine. And that was my, my sign. In other words, when you're looking at I mean, I, I imagine that the, the, what they're after me to say is that that there was something, you know, uh, grotesque or or evil in, in the point of, of, of trying to push the life out of someone's life. And that there's, I got some gratification from doing it. And 
had to do this. I felt I need to do this, so I was upset. And I'm terrified of, the, of, the, of getting away with it. I was hoping I'd get away with it, thinking I should get away with it. But, you know, I had no idea for sure, because everyone kept saying there's no such thing as a perfect murder, but my first murder seemed to be that way. Alice in a box asks, why wouldn't you just stay silent so you could keep on murdering? Why was it so important for you to be known? Well, you know, there's this is this is something I wanted to do when I was when I read the affidavit when I was given the affidavit from uh, Detective Rick Buckner in Las Cruces, New Mexico. I read the affidavit and I realized I was caught. I, everybody around Julie had pointed a finger at me, and I realized I was it. I was done. I, I turned myself in on that murder alone. I didn't turn myself in on all the murders. Only after the happy face letter was compared to my suicide letter to my brother did the other murders come into play. Only then did all of a sudden I realize that I was I was dealing with not just the first murder, that, that last murder I done, but all of them, including the Bennett case. And... I had to come to an understanding with myself that I was going down for the rest of my life. I had to, um, I had to take care of business. I mean, if I were to, let's say I did the, what everybody else has done. Uh, let's say I, I allowed my attorney to fight it all the way through court and, and I would have got more press, by the way. I would have got a lot more press because he was defending then a serial killer in court and every day there'd be some news agency going nuts with this. Or, if I'd done that, I mean, this is the way the scenario would be. I would be still convicted of the crime, only that everybody else would know through the through the, uh, the newspapers what I'd done. This way, I went ahead and I told on myself so that it would get done, but done quicker, with less press. So, what, you're, what most people think that I'm so much in the news, because my daughter had been out in the news trying to push the narrative along that she's the daughter of a killer and that, and she's on Dr. Phil and, and Oprah and all these others. Had she not been on all the shows, I doubt very much that you would have probably got, got a hold of me because I would have been just another killer in prison just doing time and not in the news all the time because my daughter's up there playing. Speaking of your daughter, uh, Julie asks, do you think you and your daughter uh, would be friendly again? Uh, I also love the TikTok videos that you and Keith do. So you think there'll be some kind of reconciliation? Well, it's, I think it's going to happen. I think my daughter's going to come to realization that telling lies out there wasn't in her best interest and that and that her daddy knows about it, but I still love my daughter. Mm-hmm. I still love Melissa. She's my daughter, and she always, will always be my daughter. Mm-hmm. I can't, you know, I still miss talking to her. I wish that she would come around. I wish that her and her new husband, who I've known all of his life, too. You know, Steve Knoyer and his parents, his parents live in Warrington, Oregon. And just, you know, not that far away from here. And I went to, high, I went to junior high and high school with his, with his father, Royce. And he's a hell of a nice guy, and his, his, and his mother, Elizabeth. I wish that, that, yes, they could be part of my life, too. But there's, you know, there's... They had to deal with the fact that I went to prison, and and a lot of people do not want to be associated with someone like myself in prison, even though they were my friends out on the street. And so, yes, I think my daughter and I can reconcile on this and, and, and 
act together and, and be a, a father-child relationship kind of thing. I wish that happened, and I wish also I could be a grandpa to, the, to her children as well. Just want to say, now, I have two other children. I have a son that's in the Army, and I also have a, another daughter that's a registered nurse in Spokane. She has a couple boys, and we don't, I mean, I send letters to her, and I send her, you know, purse and stuff like that. I'm trying to, you know, reconnect. But I can understand they've moved on, and maybe that's best that they do move on. Hopefully it'll work out. You know, we, I can't force the issue. That's the one thing. Can't say you're going to do this or else because it's not going to happen. I can't, I can't force the issue. Mm-hmm. All I can do is hope that time will heal and they'll move in that direction where they may want to have a part of my life. And if they don't, that's, I'm, I'm good with that because I, I made this life for me. I blame myself for it. It's not their fault. It's my fault. If they just work that way, all the, all the power to it, right? For sure. Uh, Amy, just a couple more. Uh, Amy asks, your victims were all women. Uh, was it because in your past uh, were you hurt by a woman and maybe somebody broke up with you? Um, were you abused by a woman maybe as a young child? Uh, is that the reason why all your victims are women? Or was it just because you had a bad temper? My, my biggest thing was the Bennett case was that my girlfriend had left me for another truck driver. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I was basically on a one-night stand and it didn't work out the way I wanted it to. And, of course, um, it ended in, in, in the way it ended. Do I, you know, do I hate women? No, I love them to death. You know that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, it, take that in, in a higher stride there. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't I don't hate hate on the, on the women. I have a lot of, I've got a lot of girlfriends and a lot of women I've gotten along with over the years. And, uh, and I wish I could reconnect with them. Uh, some of them I met from in prison. Some of them, you know, were out there on the street and they wanted to stay connected. Uh, I, I've had problems with guys out on the street too when I was running. But you know, the, the problem is when, they, when you told when I told the guy, I said you need to back off, you need to leave me alone because you don't know what kind of person I am. Sometimes when I get kind of like angered, you know, like it's you know, so like this one guy said to me one day, he says these hands are lethal weapons. Because he was a trained fighter at one time, but he wasn't in, in shape to do it now. But he kept talking about that. And I said, you have no idea what my hands are capable of doing. And, of course, probably now he does. But I've had issues with guys. And usually what will happen with a guy is that if he'll look at my size and he'll weigh out the fact that if I push the guy too far, maybe he'll pop me in the nose and that'll be the, or worse. And my size is that he's not going to win anyway, kind of like. So he'll leave me alone. He'll walk away. When I had issues with some of these women I was dealing with, they they have a tendency to want to push it further because they don't think you're going to do what you think you're going to do. They have uh, they have this um, they they've gotten their way for so long. They think that they can keep pushing and a guy's going to just I'm going to fold and I'm just going to give them what they want. And I just said you don't know you don't know the half of it, right? I think half of them thought that I was kidding. You know, I think they thought I was kidding when I said, you know what, I'll, if you don't mess with, quit messing with me, I'll just take you out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, sure you are, you know. And, and then, of course, yeah. surprise when, it, when there's a graph and they're dying, they're like, well, maybe that didn't work out as well like I thought it would. But, you know, by that time, I'm, I'm thinking that way. But if I told them I, I was going to strangle them, they know damn well I was going to. They mm-hmm. didn't know that. 
Of course. They thought I was kidding. You know, you don't leave me alone, I'm going to take you out. And they don't, they're thinking like, oh yeah, right, I've heard this before. And that was my, that was my issue. I think that, I think most of them were probably, uh, shocked that it actually did happen. Like, they're looking up at me like, oh man, I, I made a mistake. <laughs> once I started, well, the only thing problem with that is once I started the process, I wasn't going to back down because I didn't want to let them go, and then they'd be the, they'd be on TV on A and E going like I'm the one that got away. Yeah, I just I just continued on because it was uh, you can't stop. You have to you have to finish the project uh, because you started already, and they and they get near you know if you let them go, all of a sudden they'd be yeah okay. Mm-hmm. I got over on that guy, and then move on to the next one, and maybe do something to the next guy. Get along. Yeah, it's yeah, it, it became. Uh, uh, Amy asks, uh, what's your favorite joke, and have you actually had fights in prison? Yes, I have fought in prison. There's most of them. I mean, everyone that I've fought in prison is still here. I know there was a guy that was claiming that he had beat me up, and he's out on the street when he was in here or something like that, but I, that doesn't happen. Uh, I had, I've had fights where, uh, you know, I, I've got my nose busted and uh, I've had to take the fight on to the other people. And I've had to actually have guys come at me with a, with a walk and a sock and knock my butt out. I mean, I was in, in a car room and all of a sudden I got hit back in the head. You know, most, most of the fights that I've had is from behind. They come at me from behind. I had uh, one time 11 guys come at me and I ended up taking three out before they decided this wasn't what they... You know, they thought it was going to happen. And then uh, I had a guy come up behind me while I was sweeping, and they popped me in the back head and stood there waiting for me to do something. I was like, oh, come on. You know, this isn't right. You know, let's, let's take care of this. And he just wouldn't get close to me so I could hit him. Mm. I had one guy come up there and swung on me, you know, blindside man. I chased him around the, the, the track, and I chased him around the yard, and finally... I stood by the, the gate when they rang the bell and everyone had to leave the yard. Sooner or later, he'd have to come by me. And I went over and I stalked him in the temple and knocked his ass out. And a guard tackled me from behind. And, and we're both in the hole asking the same question. Why Why do we even get in that fight? But it's, there are, when you come to prison, you have to uh, set a standard for yourself. You have to show them you have heart mm. and you will fight. If you, if you are a coward or if you stay, you stay away from fighting, then you become a target. And that's the problem with prison, that you do not want them, you don't want to give them the idea that you're not going to fight back, but then you're going to be a target all your life in prison. So you don't want to do that. Now, I thought, um, and obviously I could be wrong, I don't know firsthand experience, but hitting somebody from behind in prison, I thought that's one of like the, the no-no rules, um, that you could be attacked yourself for kind of like, taking the cowardly way out, like be a man, go face to face, don't sneak up from behind. Uh, but I guess that's not a thing. Well, it's kind of it's kind of a tell. When someone hits you from behind, they're fearful that you to come at you head on. They are afraid that if they came at me head on, they'd lose right away because you got to consider I was a golden glove back in 82. And they didn't know this, right? When I first got here, they had no idea I had any boxing skills at all. And of course, my first fight out when I was in the hole, I was, I was telling the guy, he said, you hit hard, I knocked my ass out. I said, yeah, well, I boxed for nine years. You don't think I was going to hit you back? You 
think that's something coming. Of course, then they realize, well, wait a minute. They had, when I first got here, they had a boxing arena. You could get into a boxing arena and you could face off legally without going to hole. You could get in the arena with somebody else that has an issue with you. You could, They wouldn't let me in the ring. I want to go in the ring. Let's go in the ring and I'll take on all comers that want to come in and beat me up. And we'll do this. I, just, I thought that stuff was just in the movies. <laughs> Boxing rings in prison. I didn't think it was actually a real thing. That's crazy. Well, this is this is easy to prove, right? If you think I'm bullshit. You, watch, you ever watch the movie called Bandits? Willis and Billy Bob Thornton. They were in here. They, they filmed the, the opening scene in the Oregon State Penitentiary. Here. Okay. Billy Bob goes up. He, he walks into the boxing arena, and, and uh, Bruce Willis is in the boxing arena. He's fighting some other clown. And he beats the guy down, and, and Bruce Willis is, is, is what he, I mean, Billy Bob Thornton is, is talking about... Um, suing for peanut butter or some stupid thing. And they end up breaking out of the prison by driving a cement truck through the wall, right? Or through the through the gate. Well that was all filmed in here when I first got here. They they, they had the they were doing the filming. I, I signed up, I was trying to get into it as an extra. I wanted to get it as an extra in the uh, uh, so that I could jump in that cement truck and be the real guy that leaving the prison. <laughs> <laughs> But they they saw through that and wouldn't let me on the wouldn't even let me on the film set. Billy Bob was really nice to us guys. He treated us like one of his one of his friends. Uh, Bruce Willis was an asshole. He was not talk to us. He was he was he, he didn't give us time. To, he he thought he was above and beyond what we were. Mm. We were beneath way 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 below him. But but Billy Bob was really a, a great man, and uh, he treated all of us inmates. With respect, and uh, and he joked with us. Now, the other part of this question was, what's my favorite joke? Now, I don't know. There's there's so many of them. <laughs> it's like you know, I keep hearing new jokes all the time. <laughs> it's like uh, the one blonde was walking down the river, and on one side of the river, and she looked across the river and she saw another blonde on the other side of the river. And she yells over at the blonde. She says, "Hey." How'd you get on the other side of the river? And, and the other blonde yells back and says, you are on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just told this other joke that I've, I've heard over over the years, and it's kind of a funny joke. It's kind of, it's kind of crude. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this, this, this guy, has a, he, he gets married, he goes on his honeymoon, and he goes out there and he has a hell of a good time, and he comes home, and his, he goes to work, and this guy at work, he goes tells him, he said, well, Hey, how are you doing? He said, how was the, how was the wedding? He said, fine. He said, how was the honeymoon? He said, great. He said, what'd you do? He said, I went fishing. He went fishing. I thought, well, didn't, weren't you there on your honeymoon? Weren't you there to get a piece of the action, right? Or didn't you screw her or something like that? He said, no, no, couldn't do that. Said, why not? Well, she has gonorrhea. So what? Gonorrhea? He said, no, I couldn't, I couldn't tap that at all. I said, so what, did you turn her over or anything like that? Did you turn her, get her from behind? So said, no, I couldn't even do that either. He said, why not? I said, well, she has also has diarrhea. Really bad, man. I just couldn't, I couldn't tap that at all. Max says, well, well, shit, man, what'd you do? He said, well, we went fishing. That's what we're doing. Oh, come on, you got to do more than that. You must have gotten some, some mouth action, right? She went down on you, great. She said, no, no, she also has diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? He says, she has gonorrhea. She has diarrhea and now pyrrhea 
what the hell did you marry her for anyway? He says, well, she also has worms. You know how I like to fish. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Great way to end the Q&A. <laughs> well, no, I got, you know, there's, there's one thing that I probably, I should probably tell you, okay? Have you ever heard of the goddamn Mr. Murphy poem? I don't think so, I did. <laughs> okay, so this is a poem that you might know. I was 12 years old. Uh, us guys were, uh, I was traveling with my dad and, and Ralph Clark, which is a friend of my father's, and they're driving in a couple of campers. We're going up in the central British Columbia. We're going fishing. And we had like 10 kids with us, right? And there's a poem when I was like 12 years, 11, 12 years old that all the kids knew, but they were afraid to tell an adult what it was, right? And, it was, and I was, I have this memory that I can remember this crap. And so I recited this poem to Mr. Clark while he was driving the pickup with the camper on it. I recited the poem to him. It was called, God damn it, Mr. Murphy, God bless your heart and soul. Right? And Ralph Clark, he, he, he got laughing so much, he damn near wrecked the damn pickup on side road. And later that night, when we were all camped around a campfire, he, prom he made my dad promise that he wasn't going to spank me for telling him some bad words. I had to recite the poem to my father, and then my father had me recite it to him about three more times so he could remember it. And he could never really remember it. And only, and I wasn't supposed to tell my mother anything about this poem. And then they had a club, which is a drinking club, and, and when we're at home, you know, several months later, all of a sudden, my mean woke up at 11, 12 o'clock at night. He said, you got to come down and tell the poem to, my, to everybody in the club, which included my mom. And everyone laughed, and they're all drunk and everything like that, and everything's okay. But the poem is called God Damn It, Mr. Murphy. And it was in the book Jack Olson wrote by the creation of a serial killer, but he never put the whole poem in. He just put the first and last verse in and left all the interior. He said I was sexually frustrated as a kid, right? But had he used the whole poem, it would completely shoot down that whole damn scenario. What I'm going to do is I'm going to recite to you the poem Oh, great. That I remembered when I was a kid, and then you can you can either laugh or whatever you want with but yeah. this is the way it is. It says, God damn it, Mr. It starts here. God damn it, Mr. Murphy, God bless your heart and soul. Last night I fucked your daughter, but I couldn't find her hole. I thought I found a hole, sir, underneath her frock. God damn it, Mr. Murphy, I couldn't find my cock. I thought I found my cock, sir, underneath my pants. God damn it, Mr. Murphy, I couldn't make it dance. I thought I made it dance, sir, straight as a pin. God damn it, Mr. Murphy, I couldn't get it in. I finally got it in, sir, and wiggled it about. God damn it, Mr. Murphy, I couldn't get it out. I finally got it out, sir, it's red, black, and blue. God damn it, Mrs. Murphy, next time I'll fuck, fuck you. And I'm sorry. Get it. <laughs> yeah, that was stupid because it was like when my dad called me up, you know, go down to the party. I felt like I was that organ monkey, right? They cranked him on, cranked the old thing, and I was yeah. you know, just singing it down. I sang that thing probably a dozen times over the years at his damn parties just because he thought it was so damn funny that his kid was singing that damn song. I mean, I mean that's what people uh, really love about when you're on the podcast. Um, they're hearing directly from you. They're getting to know you on the personal level. I mean, of course, you got the true crime fans. They like the blood and guts of everything, which is fine. You know, I, I, I enjoy this podcast, too. Um, but they're hearing directly from you. You're not being told what I said. Yeah, and also they're getting to hear your inflection. Um, they're not again. They're not just reading in a in an article. You know, again, like what uh, this person or that person said. They can get to hear your sense of humor. 
um, what you want to get across. You're not hindered by somebody with an agenda. Um, just kind of getting to know you, your sense of humor, uh, and then you're comfortable in your own skin. I am, I am comfortable <clears throat> with the idea that I'm a murderer, which is kind of strange because I'm in prison, right? But I've, I've had to tell the story so many times. It's, and the psychologists say that, you know, if, if you tell the story over enough, pretty soon it becomes second nature and you don't want to really think about it. Mm-hmm. Because if you tell, I try to tell my daughter this, I said, if you tell the truth, it becomes, it, it is reality. But if you have the lie, you have to make it up as you go along. And pretty soon you forget what you've told everybody and you start lying again and your story changes. And you're always, you're always, you know, contradicting yourself. And that's what she's done with her kidney story. Every time you turn around, it's a different different scenario, different story. Oh, I buried him over here. We took him to the canal over there. I did this, I did that. She's having a hard time with it. I think, I think what's happening is she's, she's realized that, uh, She's now being debated. Uh, for sure. Uh, and for everybody uh, who might not know, if you go to my TikTok page, uh, we addressed some of the things that uh, uh, Key's daughter accused him of, like these uh, killing these kittens when she was younger. And we give her facts that, well, it's impossible because she wasn't at this place at this time. They didn't own a house. They had a basement when she was five years old. It wasn't until she was like eight or nine. Just, uh, but go, go to the TikTok page, and you can read it all about that. That's what Keith is referring to. Um, but that's all the questions. But why don't we uh, end on another positive note? Everybody lets, obviously likes your sense, sense of humor. Um, so do you want to leave them with uh, another little funny antidote uh, from uh, from yourself? Uh, I was hauling recyclable newspapers up to Sky's Fiber. Now, I bow hunt, and so I have this, this, this chemical called skunk scent. When you mix two chemicals together, it makes a skunk sense of mass by scent when I go hunting. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to go hunting after I went up there to deliver this load of newspaper to Kai's Fiber. And I had this bottle in my pocket, my front pocket, that was already mixed. So I didn't have to mix it out in the field. Well, I get up there and I unload this. In order to unload my trailer, I had to get in the back and move out about three feet of it before the ramp would go in. And then a bobcat would come in and scoop it up and they'd, they'd put it in this make pulp and they'd make these, there's a vacuum type setup where they make these trays. Well, the following week when I show up and when I went hunting, I couldn't find my stuff then. So the following week, I go up with another load of, of newspaper and I get in there and they open up the back door they, and they stick their snow in there. They said, man, there's no skunk in here. And I said, what do you mean skunk? He said, the last load you brought in had a skunk in it. And I said, no, it didn't. I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, you know, you look around here and it's open to the whole, you know, the a skunk could walk in and just hibernate in the newspaper. You'd scoop it up and put it in the bath. And that's probably what happened. So they rationalized it out that that's what happened. And so the following week I came up there, they had a brand new varmint fence all the way around the perimeter of this place. <laughs> and they had a, they had a guard out front on the gate. And they had this other little, where you pull in, they shut one gate, open another gate so that you watch, make sure no animals come in. And that was all because of the one little bottle of skunk scent that I had. I was, when they, when, when they told me they had a skunk in there and I could smell it, so they had to shut down for, for a week. Wow. The whole place had to shut down and they had to de- you know, steam clean everything. Wow. This was a costly event. This is like a couple hundred thousand dollars out the window. And I'm sitting there knowing exactly what, is, what happened. And then when, uh, when I came to prison, I decided I'd write him a letter and I tell him, this is what really happened. Did, did they ever respond to you? I never got a response back, but I wrote to Kai's Fiber up in Wenatchee, Washington. I said, you know, by the way, when you when you had to put that barber fence in, what really happened was 
I've lost my skunk scent when I went to go hunting and fell out of my pocket. And that's how, that, that, that's where the, when I hit all the chemicals in the, uh, in the pulp, oh. it's that blue type pulp, it, it just expanded the skunk scent. You could, you could, they had to pump it all in. They lost about 10,000 gallons of, of pulp and they pumped it out in this holding box and it stunk like skunk for, you know, it was horrible what a little bottle could do. But that was my, my dealing with skunk scent. That happened back in the 80s. Uh, about 84, I think 1984 is when it happened. It's kind of crazy, but that's, you know, that's one of the things that happened. You know, that, I thought it was funny. Of course, and uh, I think that is the perfect way uh, to end the podcast. So a big thanks uh, to Keith Jesperson uh, for playing along and, and answering some questions. Yeah, some very serious, of course, and uh, and some funny. And this is the lighter side of Serial Killer podcast. Uh, so we thank you, everybody. For tuning in, I think we got most of the questions um, answered that you guys asked. Uh, anything, you know, any other questions you guys want to know, send me a message. Again, Keith calls me at least once or twice a week. Um, if something that um, uh, something important, of course, I can forward the question to him and he'll answer for you. So, again, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode of The Lighter Side of Serial Killers. And until next time, see ya! See ya!